Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode on Florida's roadside treasures is, is to, to die, die for. for. Sydney. It's going. As you can probably tell, I have a little bit of a cold, so everyone bear with my gremlin voice again. <laughs> Not again, Sydney. I know. My goodness. Well, I am back in Florida, so I yes. have a podcat. Uh she got a Trader Joe's uh chat advent calendar for <laughs> For my arrival home, it literally, there was no other special reason. I just was excited. <laughs> I just missed her. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so. We're glad to have the podcat back. Yes, yes, yes. We needed it. We were in need of the podcat. I do miss my 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 sweet kitty from Little Cayman. I, oh. I wanted to bring him home in my suitcase so badly. Little Cece. <laughs> He's just Mr. Man. I love him. Um. But yeah, I'm happy to have my kitty back. I am back a couple days early. Uh, the ending of my trip was far more insane than I had ever expected. And we will probably hear more about that at some point. But I'm just happy to be back and in one piece at this point, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Any plans to get in the water uh, in Florida soon? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm planning to go in the bridge on Sunday. Um, the the viz is supposed to be absolutely terrible, but to like, I think today the viz was three feet, and the waves are supposed oh. to kick up over the weekend. They're at like eleven foot waves right now offshore, and it's supposed to be like thirteen to fourteen on by Saturday. So, uh, the visibility is not gonna be good. But I think I'm just gonna go sit in water and be neutrally buoyant and just stare yeah. at my buddy's face from six inches away. I think that's my plan for Sunday. <laughs> Sounds good. Maybe throw on a Santa hat, get a little little Christmas dive in. Yeah, yeah. You won't be able to see the Santa hat, but I will bring it. <laughs> <laughs> what is that red blob over there? Ah. It's hey, At least at that... <laughs> At least at that depth, you can still see the red blob. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It is not a brown blob. That is true. I will say, <laughs> just last week, I was diving, looking for some corals using a map. We were doing some fate tracking of some specific individuals. And um, the the map is all color-coded, which on land is great. Oh, no. But we got down to the bottom, and I could not tell what species I was looking for at all. Like, I had no idea. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm just looking for a coral that has a tag on it at this point. Like, it was so wild. And so uh, I swam over to one of the other divers, and I was like, do you have a, a map that has that's, like, black and white? Because all the black and white maps had, like, the labels of the coral species on each yeah. one. So we ended up figuring it out. It all went fine. But it was... I, it was another one of those moments that I got to the bottom and was like, oh, right. Color. That's a thing. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Love that. Yeah. yeah. Really, uh, really brilliant move on my part. You wouldn't know that I 
like am a scientific diver with a master's degree in in doing science underwater or anything. <laughs> you need a dive light. Oh yeah, that would have. Oh, oh no. <laughs> you're way too smart. You've got to stop this. <laughs> uh, you. I just should have been your dive buddy. Okay? You should have been. Just get back here. Just come on. Okay, fine. <laughs> Well, how, <laughs> besides being sick, are, how are your holiday season activities going? Um, It is still so hot here, and I don't really know how to celebrate a tropical Christmas, so if anyone has any ideas, there there is an ice skating rink, so I'm planning on going there to get my fix of, like, snow and ice, maybe? Um... But yeah, if anyone has advice on how to celebrate Christmas when it's not snowing, let I, me know. I want to see Santa Hat Beach Volleyball. That's what I want from you. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. I need you to come come visit me so we can do our bikini Santa photo shoot. Yes. Oh my goodness. I know. I <laughs> have been missing all of our spontaneous like adventures and, and random santa hats and halloween costumes and things like that yes Alrighty, i have a fun news piece for us this week i know that i just did last week's but i found another one so you're gonna have to hear from me twice um so this article says that there has been an increase of nesting habitat suitability for green sea turtles in a warming mediterranean sea um, so essentially what this is, um, what this paper found, this is a study by uh, Mancino or Mancino et al. Uh, it was done in 2023. It's in Scientific Reports. And the lead author works at Sapienza University in Rome. It's super cool. It's It shows basically that um, that considering some different environmental variables, including things like uh, pollution or eutrophication, things like sea surface temperature and salinity, um, the environment in the Mediterranean is actually becoming, uh, through this model they're predicting, that it is becoming more suitable for uh, green sea turtle nesting, uh, thanks to its additional warming that we're seeing in uh, in global oceans worldwide. So uh, these different factors are kind of all coming together to allow increased green sea turtle nesting potential habitat, which is super cool. I feel like most of the time we see these like really negative stories associated with climate change, which is fair. There's a lot of negative news, but um, it's interesting too to see that like as organisms are moving poleward, a lot of them aren't just disappearing from their original ranges, but they're also appearing in new ranges, which is interesting and unique. Uh, so it'll be an interesting one to watch to keep an eye on. Range expansion. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Nature. Nature will always prevail. I, I do I do believe that. I do think that is true. <laughs> Despite our best efforts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, another person who's going to be at the bridge this weekend is our special guest this week. Uh, so... We are super excited to have somebody on the podcast who is another South Florida local um, who is super excited about diving in even the muckiest conditions here. 
Um, another strong advocate for the Blue Heron Bridge. We are not biased Blue at all on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, without further ado, can introduce our special guest for the week. Okay. Special guests, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us your name, your pronouns, where you're from, and where you live now. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Gabe Jensen. Uh, I go by he, him pronouns. Uh, I currently live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, right on the edge of the small town called Lauderdale by the Sea, which has excellent shore diving. I'm primarily a shore diver, so that means that I uh, get suited up by my car which is my, my trusty dive boat, and uh, I go diving anywhere that you can pull right up to the water. And are you are you from Florida originally? No, no. I'm Like everyone else in South Florida, I come from New York uh, originally. Me too. <laughs> what, see, just what I said. And uh, yep. you know, I immediately after college, I like, moved down to Florida. Um, my very first job after school was cleaning toilets at Walt Disney World. It was awesome. Uh I I suggest everyone wow. spend six months doing that because wow, you learn a lot. Humbles <laughs> you, I'm sure. Um before we get into the the infamous intro question, I was gonna say that I was talking to you earlier and you said that you went to a SUNY school, right? Yes. I went to SUNY Geneseo. So that's way out by uh Way out in the middle of nowhere, like half an hour south of um, of Rochester, New York. Um, I I loved it at the time, you know. But after four years of snow, you're ready to head south. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up 15 minutes from Geneseo, <laughs> so I know the area very well. Perfect. I know. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, Sydney's gonna have something to say about this." Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to also a SUNY school, but I went to uh, Stony Brook. A little bit farther away. That's like, hey, it's all part of the same system. Funny enough, yeah. you know, I'm not the only underwater photographer to come out of SUNY Geneseo. There's, it's okay. just, hmm. it's so random that I get like a uh, random alumni updates, and there, there's another profile of someone who just loves taking pictures underwater, and it's, uh, huh? Yes, I, yeah. So it's, it's funny how that will kind of drive uh, or connect people there. Yeah, something yeah. about getting away from the snow and uh, moving to warmer water. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, so we'll we'll jump in to the infamous question, which is, what do you think drew you to the water originally? Well, you know, a lot of people answer this question by saying that they were water babies or that they grew up uh, around and near the water. And I can say I was definitely like a pool kid growing up. Like my parents, we went to pools. Uh, you know, if we stayed somewhere, it had to have a nice pool. We went in the pool, preferably it'd have a view of the ocean, but that was it. And um, I actually, up until a few years ago, anything that had to do with murky water, I was deathly afraid of. I really didn't like it or that fear of the unknown in that murky water. I couldn't handle it. And then um, I had just, I had moved to Florida and I was in, I was living in Tampa and I went uh, just for like, just to visit the Manatee Viewing Center over yeah. by the power plant. And uh, it was magical. They have these little baby bull sharks that jump and twirl out of the water, just like spinner sharks. 
Um, and I, at the time I didn't see those and I didn't, you know, I didn't care about the manatees, but I saw these massive fish just swimming in and around the manatees and a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, that is, that's like right there. That's real life. There's big giant fish that just swim around. Like that's not on TV. Those are huge. Now looking back, I know that those are Jack Revals. Um, and they were, they were, they are really big. And then looking back, they are still super massive fish in my memory. But it kicked off a love for the ocean that, you know, is just a constant, um, a constant story of kind of finding a way to get closer. Uh, it started off with the only thing I, I knew, which was like, I guess I could go fishing. So I taught myself how to go fishing. Um, and then I taught myself how to go fly fishing. And then I saw these really cool videos on YouTube stop propping up around like 2014, 2015 of these like guys in Australia that were like free diving and going around and like spearing fish and all that. And it was to me, that was like to a 23 year old, that is like the coolest thing you've ever seen on the planet Earth. And you're like, oh my God, I want to do that. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but St. Petersburg, Florida is kind of one of the centers of um, one of the centers of the world for that kind of spearfishing. And so that was my first chance, like first taste of joining a community of spearfishermen who kind of took me under their wing and like taught me a whole bunch. We went out on their boats, learned how to shoot fish and I was just getting closer and closer. Um, and it was, it was quite magical. That's also where I kind of first picked up like a GoPro and wanted to take pictures of, people. I like taking pictures of free divers using a GoPro, not very, you know, extreme. And, uh, that, <laughs> but that's also where I ran into the next group of people that kind of introduced me to the water. And that was the mermaids. And, uh, I, I have, uh, I have two friends, shout out to the Mernation, uh, Aaron and Mike over in St. Petersburg, and they, uh, make mermaid tails out of silicone and oh that's cool yes yes i i met my now wife uh and she was on the weekends she would be a mermaid and so i would carry her into random people's pools so she could be a mermaid for children's <laughs> birthday parties uh and i just at that i was like this is cool and people want to see pictures of this and so i started with the gopro and i then i bought a sony a6000 camera no lighting or anything i had i read zero theory on this i was just shooting fully automatic didn't care you said i'm, I'm going, going i'm it. going for it <laughs> there's there's water and there's girls this is perfect uh oh. then we and then my career oh because i've always been a weekend warrior my career took me over to south florida oh. st petersburg or south florida Pompano beach fort lauderdale and um, I've bought a set of scuba gear, and it's just been like ever since, every single weekend now, since I bought that set of scuba gear in Christmas 2020, I have like not been able to stop. <laughs> I just, I just go, and now I'm fully kitted out. I have the whole, I have a whole Sony A7R3 rig and a Nauticam housing and all of the lights and strobes and not just one set of strobe, like several sets of strobes and all the lighting. All the magnifiers, everything you can get. They love me. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I I think that uh 
that is the curse of underwater photography is that I'm learning this vicariously through Lawrence is you just collect things like you just have more and more and then you're like ah but what's like another set of strobes and then you have like five why do you need (laughs) why do I need so many strobes you don't it starts with a drawer and two drawers and now there's a dresser and a shelf and the desk (laughs) oh yes it gets to be a problem Mm -hmm. and the walls (laughs) I'm just gonna say I see a nudie back there (laughs) that's right that's one of my favorites so that's awesome what okay wait we'll get back to my question but what kind of nudie it's actually not a nudibranch it's a sacoglassian slug so it is a costasiella ocellifera and um these guys live on the side of the road in in south florida and they are um in the in the indo-pacific the you know whenever you see images of like the leaf sheep that's very popular on social media it's the same um genus as these guys and okay they are also super duper tiny uh the guy on my walls maybe he was maybe three millimeters across and uh yeah i took yeah the side of the road in the florida keys that's crazy that's so cool so you said that you just got your dive gear in 2020 and you have alluded to the fact that you're like a weekend warrior so this is cool because it's you it sounds like you kind of came to scuba diving a little bit like later or different in life i feel like a lot of the people we talk to are like like you said like i was just born into the water like i just like eat sleep breathe ocean every day um so it's cool to kind of hear like a roundabout route to get there yeah this is uh i will say almost besides the coaxing of of my now wife who is who was scuba scuba certified before me and who is a marine biologist at been at Bimini Shark Lab and now works for Coral Restoration Foundation. She's she's legit. Uh, so it's with her coaxing, you know, I did get scuba certified in I think 2016, but that's just like you go okay. once or twice a year and you know whenever it presents yourself and it really wasn't until you're at 2020 that I made the decision, hey, I'm going to commit to buying scuba gear and I actually did it because at the time I joined this group called the South Florida Underwater Photography Society. And at that stage, I pretty much just had like a rinky-dink camera. And I I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I thought it was just the underwater version of uh, the Explorers Club. And we met every single month. I heard stories from these underwater explorers. Uh, and I started to make friends and these friends are like, well, why don't you just want to come for a dive? I'm like, well, renting gear is really expensive. And they kind of convinced me that it's just cheaper to buy your own. So I did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was introduced to this just absolutely wonderful place called the Blue Heron Bridge. Uh, I think it's, I describe it as paradise on earth and it's the only place on the planet that you can have seahorses frogfish and like used needles all in the same soupy water (laughs) so true i legitimately was teaching a rescue class and i'm sure i think it was was in this class oh (laughs) oh i don't know if i don't think it was you gave a warning in my class (laughs) <laughs> yes, because my first rescue class that I ever taught, who I know they're listening to this episode, is I was doing the very final skills and I was like having them pull me out of the water, this whole thing. They were supposed to like go from, you know, missing diver to resuscitating me, whatever. And they're pulling me out of the water and they're about to lay me down. And one of my students starts like shouting and they're like, 
great. And it like got really serious suddenly. Like it was no longer a like a, a play make believe. And I was like, uh oh, like something happened. So everyone stopped and like looked at this person and they were like, hold on, hold on, don't put her down. And they reached underneath me and there was like a used needle on the beach. And I was like, cool. So you like actually just saved my my life. That's that's good. Thank you. So yeah, the blue heron bridge, everybody. It, it is. It's a it's a little miracle that we have all all this yes. wonders right there under a bridge. Very South it Florida. Is. This is gonna be a very South Florida episode. That is yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, Gabe, you mentioned that you dive on the weekends. So what do you do for your full-time job during the week? So by training, I'm an analytical chemist. And uh, I, don't have, I don't have a degree in chemistry. My degree is actually in biology and uh, geology. Okay. But um, I kind of fell into being just like a chemistry technician at a pharmaceutical company. And I just worked, worked, worked really hard. And now I manage different laboratories um, and you kind of like jump around to different industries. It's all chemistry. So now I, now I, I used to manage, uh, well, I used to lead different groups over in pharmaceuticals and then I manage laboratories in the medical marijuana space. And now I manage a laboratory in the uh, flavors and fragrances industry. It's exciting, but it's not really related too much to diving. Um, I kind of enjoy being able to wear multiple hats uh i get to flex my creativity you know i get to get the sense of danger by diving and then i get to flex my creativity through photography and then i get to solve puzzles um and uh by being a chemist and it's a it's a lot of fun that's definitely how i feel too like i have my science which is using one part of my brain and then i get to hop in the water or paint or do art and use the other side of my brain so i like having the balance between those two it kind of Makes it easier to, to keep going in both of those uh, aspects, I guess. Don't get burned out. Um, do you feel like your, I guess I'll say like main job, uh, in any way helps you or or impacts the way you think about things when you're underwater? Like, do you notice certain aspects of your, your job, like your chemistry mind or your biology mind from your degrees, like seeping into your thoughts while you're diving or affecting the way that you're taking pictures or what you're looking for, things like that? You know what? It's uh that's such an interesting question because that requires a lot of introspection and I'll probably pay closer attention to that now when I'm underwater because I can't, <laughs> un I don't know any other way to think, right? So I don't know if it, if it is affecting yeah. me. I guess I do love you know, I eventually, I originally went to biology because I, believe it or not, love Pokemon. <laughs> and that's kind of what drew me to this like underwater macro photography. because It's literally exactly the same as playing a game of Pokemon Snap. And uh, <laughs> you, we find we literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different critters. And they all have wonderful and interesting facts that you can memorize. And uh, I... I actually take great joy in memorizing a whole bunch of facts. And uh, the <laughs> I, whenever I present um, my imagery, I kind of like to tell a little story with it. And the story tends to be based on these fun facts about these wonderful little critters. You should tell us some. <laughs> tell us some fun <laughs> facts about, like, your favorite nudies. So I'll, I'll, like, I'll explain that a little bit better or, like, segue it better. But, like, you, at least as far as I know are regarded widely as like the nudie guy around here like so many people 
like you do presentations at different like you you did a, a swaps presentation didn't you i haven't done a swaps one yet but it's in the back pocket for when we need to you know nice. full okay Yes, okay, I, I am a board member of SWAP, so they can call me in extraordinary times to fill in and do stuff. Nice. But, um, yeah, I I guess I, I did kind of fall into the nudie thing, um, primarily because I like to I like to promote doing what's local to you. So a lot of new underwater photographers tend to get discouraged when they see wonderful beautiful images from the Socorro Islands or they think that you know they have to go to Indonesia if they want to take pictures of sea slugs and the reality of that is you don't like you can just you can literally walk off the side of the road in Miami and you know take pictures of wonderful sea slugs that rival anything that you can find you know in any part of the Pacific and uh I it's to me it's just such a joy to share that and it's it's what's local to me so you know if you are like a typical american and don't have a lot of vacation time like you use your two weekend days to the fullest and uh i definitely try and do that uh there's only so far you can go two days yeah yeah and every minute you spend traveling is a minute you don't get to spend enjoying wherever you end up too you know so like getting to be like going somewhere really close to you off the side of the road in Miami that means you get to maximize the amount of time that you're spending doing that activity instead of driving there and back yeah and it's so much cheaper like you just buy a $10 tank and that's it yeah it's uh it really is quite amazing and uh it i seem to have gotten a lot of traction from uh, local divers that want to hear about the kind of wonderful things that, that we have, like seahorses that just, you know, we have three different species of seahorses that live right here. And the one, the one, the most prized of all, the dwarf seahorse is like, literally, like, if you find a mud puddle in Rickerbacker Causeway, there'll be like five right there. And, oh my gosh. And, Okay, wait. I did not even know that there were three species of seahorses here. I know, I thought what, there were it's two. It's the, the long... Yeah, we have we have the long snout, which is the radii, hippocampus radii, and then we have hippocampus erectus, which is the lined one. Uh, that's like yes. the the one you see at the bridge the most often is the lined, and then we have the dwarf, which is the hippocampus zoroastre. So we have those those three minus like the random pelagic ones that drift, you know, on those black yeah. water dives, yeah. but we have the three main three. And uh, we can get all three of them right here. Actually, I found all three of them at Lauderdale by the Sea uh, within like two weeks of each other. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. That is really amazing. I will say that I have, I have not enjoyed Lauderdale by the Sea to its fullest. Like I know that it is, it has so much potential, but I have not explored it nearly enough every time i get in the water there i'm just like so worried i'm gonna get hit by a boat that i don't think i look in the right places i just am constantly like scanning yeah, so you get a nice but... big flag and i don't really go out as far as like some other people go but lardale by the sea because of its location and the protection of that pier you do get mm -hmm. chances to see like wonderful things uh especially because it's i think it's the area where the florida reef track comes like the closest to the shore so you can go see a bunch of tagged corals that are still like in semi-okay condition you know in between the skeletons of all the dead ones and uh like that is also your chance to see large kind of or unique 
oceanic uh, behaviors of mm. animals that you wouldn't see otherwise. So whenever there's a storm, just like this one, I tend to go out to because there's something called a lobster walk. And it's not because I want to go take lobsters. It's one of the it's one of the least photographed um, kind of behaviors of a common animal that we have. Uh, and so trying to tell that story that like, hey, you know, every time there's a storm, like hundreds or thousands of lobsters like fall over each other crawling on the reef uh it's pretty cool and the first time i saw it happen i of course was set up to take pictures of sea slugs so i got like these crazy images using my macro lens of just lobsters stacked on lobsters stacked on lobsters like a lobster waterfall and this is like <laughs> i don't know 50 meters from a seafood restaurant where people are eating you know frozen fish flown in from wherever not that i want them to eat those lobsters yeah. but it i saw the irony yeah definitely that's so cool i didn't even know that was a thing it's stories like that that make me think about like like if i was just plopped on this planet with no technology what kinds of things i could learn from nature to interpret my environment right like if i was out free diving looking for fish one day or whatever and all of a sudden I saw all these lobsters crawling all over each other, would I be able to interpret like, oh, there's a storm coming? Like, how are the lobsters better meteorologists than we are, you know? And it's, I just think that's so fascinating. It, it is. And there's, and when we come to these small creatures, they, I call them charismatic microfauna. They, uh, yeah. Yeah. they, they don't get their stories told nearly as often as like, you know, the mm -hmm. mantas and the sharks, you know, sharks have a whole week, right? Not that they don't deserve a whole week, but, yeah, you know, sometimes I wish there was a frogfish week. I'm on board with that. Let's do it. <laughs> I think you and a lot of other photographers yeah. <laughs> would agree. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just oh crazy to see how many tiny microfauna creatures live in, like, such a small space. That's one thing that I love the most about the bridge and macro photography. So many people would not see these creatures if we didn't document them. Yeah, and one of the nice part you mentioned it right there is that you're not moving very much, and so the yeah. side effect of that is that you know you get pretty cold on your dives. Uh, yeah. So it's it's always fun in summertime wearing like your full your full wetsuit and a hood and gloves and boots and everything, and it's like ninety eight degrees outside. But um, yeah, the the other like positive effect is that your dives can be like really 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 long. And so I think my maximum dive time was four hours and 28 minutes at Lauderdale by the sea. Now that's with a big, oh it's a gosh. big tank. It's still 117, but uh, that was still, you know, at that, at that stage, you're running out of batteries uh, on your cameras. Yeah. That's really wild. I want to do a four hour dive. That's on the, on the <laughs> list now. Let's go. We, we can do one on a nice calm day. Yeah. Yeah. Not this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 13 foot seas right now <laughs> that's another thing though why i love diving in south florida so much though because it's cheap it's accessible and then you get to spend so much more time underwater instead of like here we boat out two hours to the great barrier reef and then you get a 45 minute dive and then you might get another 45 minute dive and then you have to boat another two hours back in and it's like i just spent more time on a boat than underwater so it's not worth it to me yeah yeah and that you know when people say that they have their their dive time or they've gone on three or four dives like every one good macro spotting dive is like yeah. three or four dives in one or can be yeah 
I now I just want to go diving with you. And <laughs> now I just want to see what you see. I I have not yet mastered the art of seeing things. And like, okay, here's here's a, a hot button question I have for you. <laughs> I dive on all these reefs that have, especially this summer, I, I was living in the Cayman Islands and I got to see like really, really diverse, really rich reefs with like tons of big life tons of small life tons of coral life inverts fish like all sorts of things um i was just absolutely tickled and then when lawrence came out we were taking pictures together and we're looking for like all the usual suspects like all the all the little nudies and the the sap sucking slugs and all the things that we love to take pictures of and i was realizing that like i didn't find as many there as you do on like a muck dive but i i'm not sure if I've convinced myself it's because they're not there, they're just like present in mucky dive places, or if it's just that there's so much there that they hide more readily, like there's more nooks and crannies and I just can't see them, or like I'm just overwhelmed and can't spot them. Like, do you have any opinions? Muck dives or reef dives? Or... Okay, I'm I'm Let's... firmly on the muck dive team here, so I... Okay. <laughs> I believe that we just our eyes aren't tuned to looking at like this three-dimensional living moving structure that is the reef. And at a certain stage, if I'm in like of a dive where I'm over reef structure and there's a lot of stuff, I just don't even try and look for the really small things. You know, I'm, I'm then looking for things that are like golf ball size, you know, like uh, little do you know that they, we have porcelain crabs right here on the on the florida reefs that these are like grail critters you know even, even in the indo-pacific and uh we have actually they're circumtropical species and we have some of them here and i i saw my very first one this summer just cruising around uh cruising around a reef and he was feeding and everything and i did whatever i could to try and get an angle to take a picture and i only have one really really crappy one but uh, there is some magic to be had, and I certainly believe that there's at least more bio, the same or more biomass on the reef. We're just not good at seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I went out, I think I talked about it a little bit on a previous episode, but I went out on the Great Barrier Reef trying to get macro photos. So doing what you were saying, Haley, like looking for the nudies and we found some porcelain crabs. I could not get photos of them because they're so buried inside a coral or anemone. But I couldn't find any of them. But this one girl um, that I was a buddy with, she has done that dive site so many times that she's able to find all of them. So while I wasn't able to, someone with local knowledge and has been diving that spot a lot was able to find all those creatures. So I think they're there. I can't find them yet, but I will learn. Repetition matters. Yeah, it definitely does. Man, yeah, I I have so much to learn in the way of spotting little tiny guys. I, this summer, would, like, kick around behind dive masters and just wait for them. They'd, like, <laughs> they'd, like point things out to me. They'd be like, oh, yeah, like, here's, like, a random example is that there is this dive site that is called Cumbers, um and there's another one called uh jigsaw or jigsaw puzzle and in both of them there's this big giant sand patch there's like a shallower back reef kind of region um or like a either the mini wall or like the kind of coral balmy kind of structure and then there's like a gigantic sand patch before the big wall which is you know the bloody bay wall um and so in that sand patch in between grows these little ulva algae that we've talked about on our algology episode. 
And on the, or not Ulva. Oh no, what what are they called, Sydney? The Everfia algae. No, Count. no, they start with a. Are you talking about like the bristle? Eudodia? Oh. You, I think they're the Eudodias. I think. Okay, I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> the the little like kind of flat lollipop shaped um, algaes, mm. and if they are fuzzy with algae growing on top of them, like periphyton or epiphyte, then there's probably not a su- a slug living on it, like a sap sucking slug. But if it's clean, then you go investigate those ones because that's where you find the sap-sucking slugs have eaten all of the epiphyte off of this big giant algae. And so, I, like, what a weird little tip to learn. But I would spend these entire dives where all these customers and guests were, like, all over the reef. They were so excited about these big giant corals and beautiful fish. And I was just, like, sitting with my face six inches from the sand in a giant sand patch for an entire hour looking at these little algaes to see if there was any sap-sucking slugs on them and how clean they were and everything. It was... It was a very, like, weird example of that exact same thing, just, like, having to go and, like, look at nothing so that the small things that are there kind of appear to you, you know? Oh. Crazy. Yeah, and, I mean, those techniques carry right over to this local area. Uh, I Would you believe it actually took me a year of looking before I actually found my very first sea slug? I dove and dove and dove, and I was... You know, I had a camera with me and I was just doing everything and I, there was just no information online at all on how to find these animals. It's all kind of passed down and, you know, like by oral tradition, practically from like, uh, from diver to diver. And I, and I credit my, who I believe my mentors are, my slug finding mentors, uh, on passing some of that knowledge to me, uh, which includes, just as you said, like finding Finding little thing like if the leaf is clean, there's probably been something crawling on it, uh, which is uh, it's just such a great trick and helps train people's minds to look for the look for the slugs. That's awesome. So you said that this is like this oral tradition, which I think is such a beautiful way to kind of describe it. And it's so true that I feel like a lot of of like the tips and tricks of diving, like obviously the, you know inhale exhale don't stop breathing like all the dive class stuff is pretty well documented but there are so many little like tips and tricks within the dive industry in general like i remember the first time i was diving i was like trying to dive on our own or whatever we were guiding our own dive in grand cayman just after getting certified it was a really wild decision i don't know that i would make the same choice again but um when we were getting into the water, someone was giving us this advice and they were like, oh, you know, like, do you find yourself blowing through your air? And if you like inhale and then exhale for a longer time, so like inhale and count to four and then exhale and count to eight or whatever, you'll find yourself like burning through your air less or whatever. And so I just thought that was like a really useful little tip that I, I now do it subconsciously. I don't even think about it. I, I do long, long exhales usually. Um and I don't know that it actually necessarily increases your your air consumption rate or like decreases your consumption rate, but it is a really nice like rhythm to get into diving and like that that kind of rhythmic breathing. And I think that things like that are often passed down through this like oral tradition as well. It's it's fascinating all the things that are just told from one diver to another in stories or in the form of like, you know, I went out and I saw these lobsters and they were crawling all over each other and just like 
you know, these shared experiences that we have. It's really interesting. Would you maybe share some of your top tips for finding nudies or other microfauna with us? Oh, of course, of course. Actually, I <laughs> I, uh, I presented this year to the Florida United Malacologists. So that is an informal scientific group of malacologists that study mollusks. Uh, we met at the uh, FWRI in St. Petersburg, so the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute, and um, I presented on how these slug researchers can get more sampling in during their very valuable dive time. So cool. And yes, because you know they have they have science to do, they have papers to write, um, and they can't spend all this time like nerding out on like where to find the sea slugs. Like you would think that the professors would be like on top of it, but uh, even they need, even they need help. And, uh, and they help me too. But uh, to find some slugs, uh, I always, always advocate. And I start again and we'll say it again is we should go like really slow. Uh, and whatever, like the top speed, like whatever your normal speed of diving is like, you're going to go half of that. And then once you're going half your normal speed, like you go like even half of that. And uh, it makes it make things just come out like more. So as soon as you're moving calmly and like not not with purpose, I guess, just drifting along like a manatee, uh, the behaviors of like little animals start to come out uh, like they, they'll start flashing their fins at each other or they'll continue on with their mating dances or they'll keep eating like you just become part of the environment as soon as you're not like kind of moving in a in a hunting mode or hunting pattern the next tip i i always give people is to like you kind of have to like defocus your eyes so a lot of divers will will come out after a slow dive with me and say like wow i, I have a headache because i was just focusing so hard on one spot and the and uh it's if you're looking at one spot it's you know you're you're trying to find a needle in a haystack. What you have to do is, you know, slugs actually move kind of fast for how big they are. And so if you just kind of like defocus and like try and it's kind of like if you're looking at the peripherals of your own vision, you just defocus and like kind of cruise real slow, you'll see movement. And that's kind of how I see my smallest slugs. So the slugs that are, you know, 0 0.5 to 2 millimeters in length, like the Costa Seal and Toys, or the Gestopteron shock moles, like the flapping dingbats, those guys are all seen just by cruising slowly. And I'm like, that speck is moving. That's a slug. And like, I know it's a slug before I focus on it and see it. That was like one of the biggest tricks that I learned from, from my mentors. <laughs> and then third, the, probably the most important thing is know exactly what they eat because you the sea slugs generally live on every like whatever they eat and so for like the very for like the super pretty like dorid style nudibranchs that are like smooth mantle with a lot of colors like they eat here in south florida they are sponge eaters and if you're in a rubble zone they're on like the encrusting sponges like the like the flamidia benzas and, and the, which are like beautiful red ones which is the harlequin sea goddesses or if you're like off the beach, the helicro the I can't pronounce the scientific name ever, but the blue sponge the blue sponges that are like the size of golf balls, they have like yeah. 
all sorts of sea slug species that live on those. That's like ambrosia for a sea slug. So every time I see a blue sponge that's like in the shape of a golf ball, I'm like, I know I've hit jackpot. That's awesome. That's so good. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to have to be looking for those. I was just going to say, um, you're going to be looking for blue sponges 24-7 now. <laughs> yep. 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 I'm going to have to come up with a signal for blue sponges so I can tell people, look for them. Look for the blue sponges. <laughs> uh, that's that's so cool. I only learned that flapping dingbats existed this year, and it blew my mind. It was so crazy. Yeah, they they are really cool, and if you like, kind of mess up and disturb them, they really do fly away. The ones here are very small, and I know you can get slightly bigger ones in the Pacific. But like when you see them fly away, it's like you know, it's like a scattering of birds, and sometimes they're even like during their I guess their spawning season, they'll there'll be like hundreds of them kind of moving around the sand. Uh, and like there'll be like a little flock, so you'll see a, a murmuration of starlings. Like, well, you get a murmuration of flapping dingbats underwater. Yeah, I don't think I have ever seen them or knew what they were. I just looked up some pictures. That's so cool. Haley, did you get a picture of one? I did. Okay. Yeah, I got some pictures of flapping dingbats. Absolutely terrible pictures because they're on the sand, and like I literally just like have my TG6 like. Not on the sand. I'm not laying on the sand, but you know, it's like just above the sand and like tilted basically <laughs> straight down on top of them because they're so small. I couldn't get them, like, I couldn't get my lens to be on the same field as them or the same plane as them at all. There was absolutely no like differentiation in bathymetry where I was um, in that big sand patch. So it was just a dingbat on the ground <laughs> with like a spotlight from my snoot. <laughs> absolutely terrible but i was so excited by it i was like i just have to get a picture so that i remember to tell people about this crazy little animal that i just saw and that's exactly what i did i just showed people and i said look this is this is what i saw it's a terrible photo but i don't even care it was small and flappy and weird and i love it <laughs> well i think it's so great that you're telling these underwater stories for things that uh don't Tip, don't that fly flap under the radar i guess yeah yeah i was just thinking when we were talking about the oral history of diving i was like the podcast is like the oral history and we get to share all these different stories and tips and tricks on finding microfauna so we're contributing yeah all of this is yeah. stuff i really wish i knew when i was starting so that's that's the basis of all my presentations is everything i like really 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 wanted to know before I got started and yeah and you know they're not typically like photography based they're they're really about finding sea slugs and I've I've kind of started adapting them now to where they can even be taught to snorkelers or people that aren't scuba divers to find slugs that are in snorkel depth uh, or like right 18 inches of water and so they can feel included and they know that there's wildlife you know, right under their feet. That's awesome. I think that is so important. And like the fact that you give these public presentations on this information means that we or you really are educating a public, a powerful public, right? Like, like people, people who know things and know how to do better, do better. And so I think it's so important to be educating people and to be helping create a connectivity or connection between the human populations and the animal populations and ecosystems in these local areas. And like, what better way to do it than to present to a local group 
this is what's in your own backyard. Like this is how you can be connected to this ecosystem that's literally right behind you, like right outside of your door. Um, so yeah, thank you for doing all that kind of work. It's super cool and, and really important. And yeah, glad to have other people out there uh, super stoked on silly little animals like we are. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I do it. I do it for fun. You know, it's not my job or anything like that. Yeah, you kind of mentioned all of these things that you wish you knew early on in your career or in your your underwater photography experience, I guess. And I was wondering if you have any challenges that you've faced in this field, and if so how you overcame it or how you would suggest that someone else interested in this field would overcome that similar challenge? Oh, man, you know, it's the same challenges of life. It's time and money, right? It's, uh, you mentioned before that you have a TG system. And I believe that TG systems are like one of like the best cameras ever uh, for opening up this macro world. But um, the monetary investment that it takes to, if you want to go beyond the TG system and take pictures of small things is not something to, uh, it's not something that's accessible to everyone. And I, and I understand that you know, I, have to work, I have to work pretty hard in order to be able to afford uh, to do that because the a camera system, you know, of, of the right quality, you know, is about the price of a, of a new Nissan, you know, car. And, um, that can, that can stand in the way. And, uh, it definitely held me back for like quite a while. And it, it did cause me to want to work a little bit harder in my career. The second thing that I have trouble with, and I still do is like, I'm always looking for how do I get more vacation time so I can get out there and do more. You know, I really do think it's, it's so strange as an American culture, how little we value that time off or the time, the time away. And uh, I I still don't know any one of my cohorts that's ever taken two weeks off. You know, everyone everyone only takes you know a week off here or there, and so I kind of plan all of my diving or expeditions uh, around only ever being able to take you know fifteen days off a year. Yeah, that is uh, that is definitely the most frustrating part for me, which I'm very blessed that it's <laughs> that's all I have to complain about. No, I I definitely agree. It's. It's interesting too, Sydney, I'm sure you can speak more to this probably than I can, but um, even just being in another country for a short amount of time, looking at and, and interacting with people who had also come to, you know, the Cayman Islands from other countries as well, looking at the way that different countries uh, treat time off is very eye-opening. I don't think I really realized there was another way to do it besides just like continual rat race of america but uh yeah. there are other ways i've found out <laughs> yeah since i've been here it has been so strange i i'm trying to get like a bunch of lab work done before my advisor comes back from her break and i was like okay i can get your hours access if you sign off on these things and i'll work a little bit during the holiday break and she was like, oh, no, 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 we don't do that here. You take your two weeks or more off for the holidays. You don't come in, you don't touch anything. And then apparently Australia, like our town, our city is just going to basically shut down for the holidays. Like everything is closed. They don't want you driving tickets, like speeding tickets. Everything is like tripled so that you're discouraged from going out. It is very strange. Everyone's like, you take time off 
take a day off in the middle of the week, work from home. You don't have to be here nine to five. And it is so strange and I'm still getting used to it. I'm like, I need to be in, finish this before Christmas. Nope, no one cares. It is, it is different. It sounds yeah. very nice. I think I, I'm curious about what that kind of thing does for like employee productivity, but I'm sure it does a lot for employee happiness. So I think I that's mean, a big deal. I'm doing great. This is better than my master's. So. <laughs> productivity up, happiness up. So. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And yeah, I hope I, I really wish there was like some sort of a system. And, and there is this kind of like informal kind of amorphous system i guess about how to get access to expensive cameras and things like that um and i know that a lot of people like who are in the field will pass their old camera gear that's yeah. that's the like amorphous system is like ah i used this for a while i'm upgrading i finally saved up enough money to get this like next system so i'm gonna sell it for a reasonable price to somebody who wants to get into the field um and so I, I think that is like your best bet as far as that, as far as I know about getting access to typically expensive gear um, in a way that's more reasonable. But if you, do you know of any other? Kind no, of... that's, I call it hermit crabbing and it's, it's definitely the best way to do it. You know, there's various online forums where we, we kind of figure it out. I'm going through the process right now. I bought a new, a brand new camera, like what, two weeks ago. And, um, now I have to find a, a new home for my for my old camera system, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. Obviously, I would want to find someone, you know, that that I can show its wonderful little quirks, and who doesn't mind that all the black paint is now gone because it used it very much, but it's been serviced impeccably. So it's that hermit crab kind of aspect works well, and you know, my new camera is five years old; it's only new to me. I love that hermit crabbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say there are the Women Divers Hall of Fame grants. I just got one last year for photography and I got uh, money to take a photography underwater course and then also got to use like a thousand dollars of that or a little bit more for buying camera gear. So that's like a really good way looking at grants and that's the only specific one I know, but I'm sure there's more out there. But uh, that's also a way to get some money to put towards camera gear. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned taking a, taking a course, you know, finding that mentorship in the underwater space, especially in underwater photography, is like super critical for advancing yourself if you want to take better pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also advocate for as someone who hasn't doesn't have an underwater uh, photography mentor who is not really an underwater photographer having a mentor who is conscientious about the ecosystem as well right like we have some really amazing people here in south florida who are incredible advocates for the ecosystem who you know when you get in and you take a photography workshop with them or whatever are going to insist that you have correct buoyancy are going to insist that you understand the ecosystem you're working in but yeah i just think that that is super super important that uh not only are you learning the underwater photography skills but you're also learning how to do so in a way that uh preserves the environment that you're trying to represent through this artwork right you're trying to protect or advocate for or represent this beautiful ecosystem and you should do so in a way that also 
maintains that ecosystem, right? So I think just a shameless plug for conservation and photography together. Yes. Awesome. Um, all righty. Well, silly we question. At my favorite part. Cindy, you can take it away. I've been hogging all the silly question oh, intros. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the the best question. What is your best dive, snorkel, water-related story? Give us all the details. So my my favorite dive story, like my favorite dive thing that ever happened to me was the time that I got to join uh, the Coral Restoration Foundation uh, going out to their primary nursery off Key Largo during the Coral Spawn event. And it was so magical. Like we get to the, you get to the boat and it's dark out. It's like a beautiful summer evening and the moon hasn't like risen yet, even though it's supposed to be during the full moon, like the moon hasn't risen yet. So the water is just black and flat calm. And the, like you see you're in the keys. So you have all the stars coming down, like you see the Milky Way and it just dips into the ocean and it like reflects back. So you're in like a, a soup of stars and you're floating out there because the the coral spawn at a very specific time like you know 10 30 at night ish and so you're we're floating for a while and i just remember sitting on the transom of the boat looking up being like wow this is this is pretty crazy and then the moon rises and it's a blood red like moon as it rises and it reflects off like the mirror surface of the water and it's this beautiful like it literally looks like a lisa frank uh cartoon book cover of like the stars and the moon and the and you're sitting on glass and it's reflecting all of it and then as you're sitting there like the little gametes start floating to the surface and uh you are literally then sitting in the in the stars surrounded by the like one of like probably the the most emotional moving you know mating things on the planet of like natural natural activities that are happening in the planet and you jump in and it is like it's probably the highest that nursery is probably the highest single concentration of a crop or a coral like in the caribbean basin probably just because you know the nature of it being like a coral farm and it is like it's snowing underwater and because it's glass like you can see the moon above you all the gametes are floating away and at the time i was hired to take like super macro images of these coral gametes as they're coming off of the corals and uh you know it, it was difficult trying to focus and not just get swept away by like the sheer emotion of seeing this like it felt like the you know like the last cry of an elephant on safari or so like on the on the serengeti it was it was pretty cool and um i think about that moment like quite frequently and uh i also like essentially the next thing i knew like I like black out and I wake yeah. up the next day. I'm like, what was that a dream? <laughs> how did, how did this happen? And luckily I have all the pictures to prove that no, I was, no, I was there. And, um, that, that was really, That's a really amazing. special night. You're like giving me goosebumps. I'm getting emotional <laughs> and I wasn't even there. I'm just hearing it. But wow. Oh yeah. That is such a dream. That is so incredible. And to do it on like a perfectly flat, calm night. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, the I mean the next day I was because the the coral spawns don't 
they don't like we like to say it all happens on the same night but it actually moves kind of like as a wave through the caribbean so if it spawns one day like in the keys it'll be one or two days and then it'll spawn like in fort lauderdale so I was already planning on going to visit my like favorite Afropora spots like in Lauderdale by the sea the next two days and I just we just so happened that the weather like blew us out and I couldn't go see the Fort Lauderdale one. But it was I was still like amazed <laughs> amazed by this uh you know happening. Next hard hitting question of the hour. What is the best boat snack or dive i mean i guess your boat is your car because you do a lot of shore diving so it's the best <laughs> post dive car snack all right so this is this is easy all of my dive buddies know this and we all we all do this it's french fries because because hey we're we're in our cars we're in america like what is the best salt like snack to have after a dive is something salty and so uh, a lot of a lot of my dive partners are vegetarian or vegan, and I just know that that's a crowd pleaser for literally everybody. So there's nothing that beats like nice salty French fries after I love it. dive, especially love it. Dive. French fries. So when we go Ooh. diving together, and you show me where all the nudies are, I'll bring I'll bring secret pocket French fries. Wait, take him to Dina's. Oh, there's a really good vegan deli up in in West Palm Beach that I always hit up after going to the bridge. They have cheesy fries and they're vegan uh-huh. and they're so good and I eat them after every dive. <laughs> Fantastic. I saw that they're opening up a new like vegan place like literally on Blue Heron Boulevard next to 4C. I was like, whoa. Yeah, it's like it's like in that one that's right next to it. I was like, that's gonna be awesome. Okay. We've we've evolved this question. It's two parts. What is your favorite and least favorite marine organism? My least favorite marine organism? I want to start with my least favorite marine organism, and that's got to be the jellyfish because I am very sensitive. So, like, I have to wrap myself up like a mummy, like, (laughs) year-round. My absolute favorite underwater animal is, of course, like, the Costasiella ocellifero, which is why I have a giant picture of it on my wall and um as a chemist they're like they're probably one of the most interesting unsolved mysteries uh when it comes to sea slugs because they eat chloroplasts in a process and in a process called kleptoplasty they're able to take these chloroplasts and put them in the folds on their back the serrata on their back and then they can photosynthesize. They create the, they literally synthesize chlorophyll and feed those chloroplasts. What's interesting, and we skip all that, what's interesting is that the process of photosynthesis generates a lot of free radical electrons that just go and wreak a lot of havoc on our, on DNA in general. And they, these slugs can survive this kind of onslaught from free radicals more than any other creature would like this would definitely kill you know if a human tried to photosynthesize at the same you know kind of way like if we put chlorophyll in our skin and photosynthesized with it like we would be dead from cancer like really really fast and uh it's the exact process of why they can survive this onslaught of electrons is kind of like unknown it's understudied 
you know, if I if I ever want to just get a PhD in marine biology, I, I think I would be studying that. Uh, luckily, there is there are people that are on it. You know, shout out to Dr. Mike Middlebrooks over at University of Tampa, who loves to work with Sacaglassian slugs. Um, but these, you know, those little leaf sheep are like really cool. And, you know, they're not even the only ones that do that. They're just like, yeah. to me, the cutest because they have that little face. They do. That's they awesome. do have a really cute little face. <laughs> oh, man. Last question? Last question. Okay. After all of your amazing dives, what keeps you coming back to the water? Huh. Well, I um, I touched on it before, but it, it really does, like, my kind of love for the bridge and all of that, it actually stems from this deep-seated fear of, like, murky depth and the unknown and i have this thing where if something is super scary to me like i can't look away like i have to get closer it's you know that it's like calling to me in like a very lovecraftian way like i like can't look away like it's sitting in the corner i have to pay attention to it and um when i when i listen to that you know the whole world gets nice and quiet and i can really you know, I sit and I, I feel centered underwater, you know, <laughs> get three hours just to myself, me and the slugs and um, getting that focus out of what was fear is feels really good. That's awesome. I I can't imagine like facing that and 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 falling so madly in love with it, you know, like being worried about something or being fearful and then ending up so madly in love with it so i think that's just so beautiful i love that well thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your your secrets and all of your uh photography knowledge with us it was a pleasure to have you on well thank you so much guys i i appreciate you having me thanks so much for listening to this week's episode don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at To Dive For Podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. So, okay. uh, one of my favorite facts about uh, marine life, <laughs> or like a random fact, I guess, is that certain species there's we have species of sea slugs at the blue heron bridge and throughout the world they're circumtropical called um the egg eater nudies and they sit and they they just munch on the eggs of other sea slugs and just like any other like predator prey dynamic some sea slugs have evolved to counter this egg eating sea slug that's like way smaller than them so the same way that like a sap sucking slug can take can do kleptoplasty and take the uh, the chloroplasts from like an algae. Some sea slugs can take the nematocysts off the hydroids they eat and put them in their serrata. And those same sea slugs can take those nematocysts and put them on their eggs when they're being laid, so that like at the size of the 
of those egg eater nudies, like when they like crawl over and eat the eggs, like the nematocyst is big enough to like spear them. And like sometimes I'll come across like a dead egg eater nudie that's been like speared. Do you have a picture of that any chance? That would be crazy to see. Um they're not very they're not very good pictures because it's like it's all just a white blob at that stage. And you know, as soon yeah, as yeah. as soon as a mollusk kind of like loses its life force, like they kind of just gelatinify. Yeah. So it, it's not like <laughs> yeah. you can't really tell what it is. It's just Yeah, yeah. It's not. That's so cool though. That's really crazy though. That's probably the best fact I've ever heard in the whole <laughs> in the whole world. I think I'm gonna steal that one and share it with people. Yeah, and I mean, it all happens right here. <laughs> Little epic stories happening, like, right on the side of the road. Yeah, that's oh amazing. Gosh. 